So it's a real pleasure for me to be here today because it's prized me out of plant sciences. Uh, I'm a geneticist who studies plants and basic uh, principles that underpin plant growth and then we'd like to know how we can apply this technology. And so often when we're talking about developing technology, we're forced, faced with sort of important philosophical questions as to the value of this technology. And it's clear that we're all faced with these, and governments are placed, faced with these. And you know, Henry's work, uh, um, Basic Rights, in, you know, published uh, 20, maybe 30 years ago, uh, really was, for me, quite an eye-opener, because it was like a handbook on how somebody could develop guiding principles for foreign policy. So today we're faced with, I wouldn't like to compare US foreign policy with climate change, but necessarily, we've got a big question, a moral question that we've got to face uh, in the future. And what I'd like to hear about is some guiding principles analogous to those that Henry developed uh, 30 years ago for foreign policy. And uh, the, the theme of today's talk will be intergenerational justice and climate change globally. So I won't take up any more of your time, but Henry, thanks very much for coming. Thanks. Thanks for coming along. Still trying to think about uh, US foreign policy and climate change and the ways in which they may or may not be similar. But uh, I've often thought it'd be interesting if you, you announced the uh, topic and not the name of the speaker. And uh, so what would happen then? I've always sort of suspected you might get more people that way. But so thanks for coming, even though you knew who the speaker was. I'll give you a. Uh, quick overview of what I want to try to do. The, the principles that ought to guide our one-way relations with future generations depend profoundly, I think, on precisely the nature of what's being provided to, or in the case of climate change, inflicted upon the future generations. Most discussions of intergenerational justice assume that some benefit might be provided to the future. In the case of the accelerating rate of climate change, however, we face a dilemma. Business as usual on our part will make the environment for future generations less hospitable to human enterprises, especially agriculture, than the environment is for us and has been for previous generations, leaving the situation worse than it is now and worse than it would need to be on the other hand, rapid climate change can be stopped only if emissions of greenhouse gases in general, and carbon dioxide in particular, are limited. Any firm limit will make remaining cumulative emissions zero sum, so that we will be competing with our own descendants for the limited remaining budget of allowed emissions. This dilemma gives responsibility to future generations a radically different shape from the problem in a lot of other cases, and I want to talk about these, these two aspects of it, the harm we do if uh, we don't control emissions and the complexity of the measures we might take if we do try to control them. My fundamental thesis is that there is no one-size-fits-all principle for questions about intergenerational justice because there is no one problem of intergenerational justice. Intergenerational justice with regard to aging, for example, and intergenerational justice with regard to climate change, although they obviously share some features, are fundamentally different problems. 
one must consider the specific goods and bads that are being transferred across generations and the respective particular relationships we in the present have to those goods and bads in order to formulate the appropriate principles to govern the relationships. I talk about climate change because I think it's the most severe and dangerous threat to humanity in coming decades, which is why I work on it. But I'm precisely not going to claim that what I will say about climate change can readily be transferred to other problems, like, say, aging. I hope there will be some similarities, however, and I look forward to exchanging views with those of you who are working on intergenerational justice in other contexts. One of the one-size-fits-all principles for dealing with justice among generations is, for example, discounting. But discounting often rests on the assumption that future generations will be better off than we are and the assumption that we might be transferring goods or benefits to future generations. If they'll be better off anyway, and the question is how much of our own goods to transfer to them, it seems reasonable to restrict our transfers so that we can consume more ourselves and restrict our savings for them. But both of these assumptions are false in the case of climate change. Future generations will be worse off with regard to the climate. If the climate is worse to a sufficiently great degree, they might even be worse off on the whole. And specifically with regard to climate, we are so far producing problems for future generations, not yet anyway, transferring any goods or benefits to them. So the central issue is not whether we are in danger of, in effect, and this is what uh, I think the discounting people really worry about, in danger of being unfair to ourselves by saving too much for the future, but how much additional difficulty and challenge we can reasonably inflict on the future. So the first point I want to remind you about, and I don't think much of this will be news to anybody here, is exactly in what way we're making matters worse for future generations, the respects in which we're creating an onrushing problem for those people who succeed us. Then later, I'll turn to the method that we're most likely to adopt to try to mitigate the damage we would otherwise do, namely carbon trading, and examine the paradoxical fact that if we're not careful, we can make the cure as bad as the disease for at least some people, and thereby further worsen the situation for some generations. It's impossible for the arrangements necessary to protect a generation against dangerous climate change to be put in place by that generation. Why? Well, there are a number of reasons, but the one I want to just quickly remind you about is the atmospheric residence time of the most dangerous greenhouse gas, carbon dioxide. Just a few years ago, scientists thought that the atmospheric residence time of, of CO2 was about a century. I spent most of my first couple of decades of thinking about climate change uh, telling everybody that the residence time of carbon dioxide was a century. The scientists have now realized that the residence time is so much longer than a century that it may be currently incalculable. And I want to quote a paragraph from the last uh, IPCC science volume. 
It's a fairly long quote, but it's key, I think. An atmospheric lifetime for CO2 cannot be defined. The behavior of CO2 is completely different from the trace gases with well-defined lifetimes. Stabilization of CO2 emissions at current levels, stabilization of emissions at current levels, would result in a continuous increase of atmospheric CO2 over the 21st century and beyond. In fact, only in the case of essentially complete elimination of emissions can the atmospheric concentration of CO2 ultimately be stabilized at a constant level. Essentially complete elimination. More specifically, the rate of emission of CO2 currently greatly exceeds its rate of removal, and the slow and incomplete removal implies that small to moderate reductions in its emissions would not result in the stabilization of CO2 concentrations, but rather would only reduce the rate of its growth in coming decades." End quote. Now, the practical implication of this rather mind-boggling conclusion, I think, is this. Once CO2 is emitted into the atmosphere, it stays there over any period of time of practical interest to human beings. And once more CO2 is emitted, more stays there. So in effect, what goes up does not come down in the case of CO2. At whatever level of CO2 the atmospheric concentration peaks, the concentration will stay for a long, long time, multiple generations at a bare minimum. This makes the duration of climate change like few other problems, except possibly the generation of nuclear waste, which is also extraordinarily persistent, and the manufacture of the most persistent toxic chemicals. But of course, the pervasiveness of climate change is incomparably greater than nuclear waste or any toxics that we know about anyway. A uh, Oxford atmospheric physicist who will be unnamed, but who's actually in the room, once said to me, the moral of this is, it's the stocks, stupid. Those of you who remember the uh, Clinton campaign and uh, first campaign against Bush know that uh, among the campaigners, there was the slogan, it's the economy, stupid, implying that Bush was missing the point. And I think that's, that's the point here. People get all excited and say, ah, well, we'll we'll reduce the rate of emissions by 80%. But if you're emitting 20% as many emissions, the atmospheric concentration's getting bigger. It's just not getting bigger as fast as it was before you cut the emissions. So it's the stocks, stupid. Okay, now these uh, empirical assumptions, I think, support three momentous judgments critical to the nature and extent of the responsibility of the current generation to begin to terminate fossil fuel usage. The fundamental question of ethics always is, why me? Why do I have to do this? So here the question is, why us? Well, first, if we don't act to prevent future climate change from becoming more severe, we have no grounds now, anyway, 
for confidence that anyone else ever can, that there can be a later reversal of additional deteriorations. Maybe somebody will come up with some technology. There are various um, more and less harebrained schemes out there, but we don't know now of some reliable way to reverse. If the sea level goes up, there's not anything you can do to bring it back down. In order to bring about mitigation of climate change a century from now then, vigorous action needs to be taken now. We ought to act even if we had no special responsibility for the problem because the action needs to be taken now and we're the ones who are here. I, this is basically this sort of Good Samaritan setup, right? The Good Samaritan didn't knock the guy in the ditch. It's just he's the one who's there. If he doesn't get him out, he stays in the ditch. So that's one reason. However, we in any case ought to be the ones to act because we are the ones currently making circumstances perhaps irreversibly worse than circumstances need to be for everyone to come in the foreseeable future, indeed threatening the fulfillment of fundamental rights. So we do have special responsibility as well as any sort of good Samaritan-ish kind uh, to take vigorous action. And third, I won't, I'll come back to this very briefly at the end, but I won't say much about it. Thanks to their hard-won understanding of the effects of reliance on, on carbon fuels, our scientists have opened the door to our bequeathing to those who follow us, a priceless legacy, I think, institutions that would nurture alternative energy sources that do not progressively undermine the environment to which the human species and other contemporary species are successfully adapted. So there's this very positive attraction as well. Vigorous action by us now could produce invaluable results in the protection through the creation of new institutions of now threatened rights. Okay, so now I want to look uh, a bit at, at the, uh, the, the, the first argument for taking action is the, the irreversible of the addition of the carbon to the atmosphere and the fact that if it's the, the peak amount is not going to be capped until people stop adding to the amount and you don't stop to the adding until you stop emitting. That's one reason for urgency. But now I want to look a bit more at this argument about uh, the harm that we're doing. The, the main argument given for inaction on climate change is uncertainty. What if, in spite of the growing sophistication and increasing validation of climate science, the dangers of climate change have somehow been exaggerated? I've dealt with this at length in print, and I can uh, give a reference to anybody who wants it. I just want to give you my conclusion uh, without any argument whatsoever, uh, and you can see if you think it's helpful. I think that one ought to ignore entirely questions of probability beyond a certain minimal level of likelihood in the case of phenomena that have three features. One is massive potential loss. Second is threshold likelihood, which uh, 
has two parts, that the mechanism by which the massive losses would occur is well understood, and the second is that the conditions for the functioning of that mechanism are accumulating. And the third feature is non-excessive costs, that the costs of prevention are not excessive in light of the magnitude of the possible losses if you don't discount those losses by uh, some factor to make up for the uncertainty. So there's a much, much more to be said about uncertainty. That's sort of where I end up. If, if you want to talk about that some, we could do that later. I think the fact that continuing carbon emissions by us exacerbate the dangers that future generations face is a very powerful reason why we ought to start curtailing them now. Business as usual is not in action. It's the knowing infliction of more straightened circumstances of life on those to come. One of the most compelling principles for the assignment of responsibility is the principle that the persons inflicting a harm must stop. First, do no harm, and must, if possible, compensate for the damage they themselves have already done. Our generation cannot plead ignorance of the implications of our choice of energy source. And the harm we're producing consists of the creation of circumstances in which the fulfillment of rights, such as those to life, health, and subsistence, which are the three for which Simon Caney has shown the connection with climate change, is uh, coming under increasing threat. So the wrong that we do is the undermining of the conditions of rights fulfillment for, the, for future people and especially the future poor. So the best way to begin to protect, to protect the rights of future generations is to stop threatening them. That is, to cease contributing to conditions that will make enjoyment of those rights impossible. If we don't act vigorously now, we do avoidable wrong to people who live in our polluted wake. Now, I, I think this is a sufficient reason for vigorous action, but I want to spend most of the rest of the time now talking about the other much more complicated and I hope uh, theoretically somewhat more interesting question of whether we can do this uh, without unfairness to some generation or other. So, keeping the cure from being worse than the disease. Like increasing numbers of scientists, although of course there's lots of disagreement about this, I, I personally believe that there's a strong case for choosing at least the minimum goal mentioned in the Copenhagen outcome document of limiting warming to two degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. Even the World Bank accepts that a rise of two degrees centigrade would include these results, quote, between 100 million and 400 million more people could be at risk of hunger, and one billion to two billion more people may no longer have enough water to meet their needs. So a couple of billion people with a shortage of water, even if we stop at two degrees centigrade, according to the World Bank. Other people who don't accept the particular goal of two degrees centigrade may, of course, view the rest of what I say as a hypothetical example with an arbitrary goal. 
The real point is that the general logic of what I'm going to say, I think, remains the same, whatever the goal is. If we want to limit global warming, for example, then, to 2 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels, we must, according to recent work done here by our physicists, avoid emitting the trillionth cumulative ton of carbon in order to have even a 50% chance of meeting our target. So if you want a 50% chance that the temperature won't rise more than 2 degrees, then the total carbon emitted cumulatively has to be capped at a trillion. We've already emitted 5 trillion, uh, sorry, 0.5 trillion tons, halfway there, and are therefore already committed to one degree of warming. Quote uh, an article by these guys, we will include Dave Frame here. Having taken 250 years to burn the first half trillion tons of carbon, we look set on current trends to burn the next half trillion in less than 40. They have a website which uh, I don't have Blackboard, but I highly recommend uh, this website called uh, trillionthton.org, where there's one of these great little meters showing the uh, tons coming out and, uh, and calculating the date when the trillionth one will uh, come. And as of yesterday, it was going to be 2044, so only 33 years left, at, you know, assuming lots of things, but roughly assuming we sort of carry on as we've been carrying on. Okay, so this research, I, I think, suggests a very helpful way to think of our challenge if we want to avoid a temperature rise of, of more than 2 degrees centigrade. And the challenge is remaining within a total cumulative carbon budget of 1 trillion tons of carbon. Although, of course, this cap may need to be revised as scientific understanding progresses. A shorthand, then, we can say our challenge is avoiding the trillionth ton. And we have maybe about 33 years, uh, less than half the lifetime of the students here, for example, to completely eliminate carbon emissions, which means completely eliminating the use of fossil fuel if we haven't figured out some way to sequester the CO2 from it, if the temperature is not to go above two degrees beyond where it was before the Industrial Revolution. Okay, accepting that the fundamental specific challenge has the shape of a need to stay within a cumulative budget of carbon emissions, and I think one has to accept this if one has any ceiling, right? I mean, you can say, well, okay, let's have three degrees. Okay, then you get more than a trillion tons, but if you're going to cap temperature rise anywhere, there's going to be a maximum number of tons of carbon, not to mention everything else, uh, which can be emitted. This has radical implications for how we ought to behave, I think, because we together with all generations who follow in our wake, must stay inside a single limit. Carbon emissions are zero sum against, across generations. The carbon emissions are zero sum across all, emitter, all emitters throughout foreseeable time. 
And this is profoundly important for the nature of our responsibilities for our actions regarding the rights of people to come. Every ton of carbon emissions for which one person is responsible is one less ton available for all the other people who will live in the foreseeable future. We are in direct competition for a scarce resource with our own great-grandchildren and everyone else's great-grandchildren. Our challenge is intergenerationally zero-sum. Now, of course, this doesn't make the problem unique. Anytime you consume a non-renewable resource, you're uh, involved in something that's intergenerationally zero-sum. Any unit of it I consume is one less unit for anybody else across time. It's just that we've realized that one way we could think about climate change is that on the time scales that matter to humans, the planet's capacity to deal with carbon without rises in surface temperature is one of the non-renewables. So, business as usual, consumption of carbon fuel is doubly dangerous for people to come. First, further carbon emissions contribute to making climate change more severe. Second, further carbon emissions contribute to using up whatever quota is politically set on behalf of humanity for total cumulative carbon emissions, e.g. the remaining half trillion tons if we want to have a 50% chance of avoiding a two degree centigrade rise. These two, I think, are each separately compelling reasons to institutionalize the initial exit strategy from fossil fuel as fast as humanly possible and assign responsibilities accordingly. The strategy will naturally need to be adjusted as events develop and better understanding of climate dynamics grows, but these double dangers make vigorous action far more robust than anything now contemplated by conventional politicians urgent. Now, I've just noted that continuation of the consumption of fossil fuels not only contributes to greater severity of climate change, but also continues to use up the remaining quota of what I've called tolerable additional carbon emissions. I should emphasize this is tolerable in an extremely weak sense, i.e., uh, not necessarily guaranteed to undermine the conditions in which human beings can enjoy their rights. This is a very low standard and, of course, an totally anthropocentric standard, species going extinct left and right already. So we can argue about the target, but whatever the total emissions are um, that is allowable, there are going to be questions of fairness arising about how the remaining emissions are distributed across generations. So, after the issue of harm, which I sort of went over quickly, we find ourselves with the issue of fairness. And I think the requirement to distribute fairly is no less fundamental than the requirement to do no harm, but its specification in this case is considerably more complicated, and the rest of what I have to say is going to be a struggle with uh, how to think about what, what's fair here with our intergenerationally zero-sum total of emissions.
Since all humans from now on share the same emissions budget, and the budget is zero sum, if one wants to be fair, one needs to leave for others their fair share and use only one's own fair share. But how can we think about this apparently novel issue of what are going to become fair shares of carbon emissions in the international institutional context that we hope, if we're going to do anything about climate change, we're about to create. One way to reduce carbon emissions is to tax them, but most of the plans currently discussed involve the creation and trading of permits to emit carbon, carbon trading, cap and trade, which will be a transformative international and intergenerational institution if it actually comes into being. Under trading, the only way to create an incentive to reduce carbon emissions is to require the possession of a permit to emit carbon and to charge some people for carbon permits, then progressively to reduce the number of permits available, the cap, driving up the price. At present, the world economy is dependent on fossil fuels and therefore dependent upon emitting carbon. But many people in the world now are too poor to pay for not only what would otherwise be the price of fossil fuel, but also the premium that would be added to the price by the cost of permits to release the amount of CO2 generated by burning whatever fossil fuel they burn. So the basic requirement for any institution of carbon trading, I think, is that it not make it impossible for people to survive by pricing those who are in the market for fossil fuels out of the market as long as so many people are still dependent on fossil fuel for lack of any affordable and sustainable alternative energy. We are, of course, trying to reach a point at which none of us are dependent on fossil fuel, but we can't make the transition by simply pretending that we're already there and ignoring the fact that most people now are dependent on fossil fuel. So the fundamental issue of fairness that arises under carbon trading is, in effect, who must pay for permits and who, in effect, receives free permits. The distributive principle for free carbon emissions, that is, without having to purchase your permit, needs to be a distributive principle appropriate to an intergenerationally zero-sum resource that is a necessity of life for as long as the current predominantly fossil fuel energy regime retains its grip on us. So, to keep it somewhat concrete, I'll continue to assume that our trading regime has a budget of half a trillion tons of carbon remaining. And uh, emphasize one more time, however, that I think the logic is the same, whatever the numbers are. One point that's perfectly obvious is that any acceptable distribution of the zero-sum quota must be compatible with every individual's benefiting from the minimum amount of carbon emissions made necessary for decent life by the then existing technology. That is, I take it to be obvious, we don't want to create an institution of carbon trading that's going to kill people uh, by depriving them of something they can't live without. The institutional arrangements currently under discussion, of course, include no plan for what would be a hopelessly impractical distribution of emissions 
directly to individuals. Most proposed schemes involve the distribution, either free or at auction, of permits to firms and or nations. The additional cost created by the requirement to have the permits then would, of course, be passed on to individuals by firms, just as it would if we had a carbon tax. But I think the logic is clearest if I simplify by describing the situation as if there were going to be permits for individuals. So I'm going to talk as if everyone in the world will need her own permit, and then some people will have to buy them, and other people will get them free. Um, obviously, you could do the equivalent of this by if the price goes up, you can subsidize the people who otherwise couldn't pay the price and give them tax credits or whatever. But anyway. Now, unless some people are to be condemned to death, as I said, for lack of benefiting from a minimal amount of carbon emissions, those who can least afford to pay for emissions ought to be at the top of the list of those who don't have to pay for the permits. For example, some people can grow adequate food only by using petroleum-based fertilizer or fossil fuel-powered irrigation pumps. Unaided, people who now can barely afford the fertilizer or the fuel for the pump might not be able to afford any increase in prices driven by permit changes. And of course, a lot of people now can't afford the fuel anyway, but I, uh, that's another problem. But I, I'm just saying we don't want to make poverty, world poverty, even worse uh, by the way we set up the permit trading. The next step in the argument is not obvious, uh, but it does seem to me to be the only prudent approach. Given how dangerous extreme climate change could be for future generations and how vital it therefore is to enforce a relatively low cap on total cumulative emissions by the time fossil fuel use is eliminated completely. We don't know for how long the remaining budget, consisting of the second half trillion tons of so-called tolerable emissions, will have to supply the, for the meantime, unavoidable carbon emission needs of many of the poor. If we don't reserve any of the carbon emissions for the market-dependent poor, that is, if we continue the carbon emission free-for-all of business as usual, the budget consisting of the second half of the total of the one trillion tons will likely be exhausted, as I mentioned already, in well under 40 years, maybe by around 2044. The longer that many of the poor people on the planet must rely for survival on carbon emissions within a dominantly fossil fuel energy regime, the longer they'll need to draw from whatever remains of this budget if we're serious about not making the lives of the market-dependent poor impossible and we accept the science, we must, in effect, reserve enough of the remaining budget of tolerable emissions for the poor to use to maintain themselves at a decent level of existence for the duration of the period during which they still must depend on fossil fuel. Obviously, the longer they remain dependent on fossil fuels, the longer they'll need to draw upon the budget, and the more of it will be needed strictly for them, the poorest. So on the one hand, the remaining budget of carbon emissions could be enlarged 
by allowing warming beyond two degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels, but that would be even more dangerous for future vulnerable people, including future poor. On the other hand, the time period of the dependence of the poor on carbon emissions can be shortened by making affordable alternative energy without carbon emissions available to them sooner. And I, I mean, one implication of all this, although I'm not going to talk much about it, is that obviously what we need is to move very quickly on affordable alternative energy and get ourselves out of some of these boxes that I'm saying we're in. So it's clearly an empirical question how long it'll take to exhaust the emission budget, whatever it is, e.g. half a trillion tons, given that both some free permits are going to go to the poor and price permits are going to be bought by other people. My suggestion, this is the non-obvious but I hope prudent next step, is that all the free emissions should be reserved entirely for the fuel market dependent poor and everyone else pays. No, for example, no uh, carbon intensive industries get a special deal, for example, which is sort of one of the plans people often suggest. If and when further investigation provides solid grounds for a confident judgment about the total number of people across foreseeable generations, who will both be unable to afford to purchase emission permits, but will also need to benefit from carbon emissions because we don't yet have affordable alternative sources of energy, then we might choose to provide free emissions to some larger group as long as the poorest are still dependent on fossil fuel. And how long the budget of possibly tolerable additional emissions will last then depends on the sum of the emissions by those who purchase permits and the emissions by those uh, who can't afford them but are given them free of charge lest they be condemned to death. The latter number, in turn, depends on how long it takes for the dependence of the poor on fossil fuel to be ended by the affordability of alternative energy, alternative to fossil fuel. So one more reason we need the alternative energy coming in at an affordable price very soon. But I think it seems to me, and I mean this is the main point, that we, we cannot set up a carbon trading regime that doesn't provide, doesn't do the equivalent of provide the permits free to the poorest uh, lest we're simply creating another human institution uh, that kills people. So we have to guarantee the emissions to the poor as long as they can't afford some other kind of energy that doesn't have the emissions. Okay. Now, just quickly, I promise the more positive, quick, final point. The third reason for urgent, vigorous action now is that for now, but not indefinitely, we face an opportunity to arrange for the protection of two sets of human rights that are going to become more and more difficult to protect conjointly. On the one hand, we can protect against undermining by severe climate change the ability of people in the more distant future to enjoy their rights to life, subsistence, and health by avoiding the emission of the trillionth ton of carbon. On the other hand, 
we can protect against undermining by means of the very cap and trade institution being created for the first purpose, the ability of the fuel market dependent poor of the present and the near future to enjoy their rights by guaranteeing them carbon emission permits without charge. As time goes by, we will, I think, almost surely be told, as we almost always are, that we have to choose between the present poor and the future poor. As the remaining, let's assume we've got some trading scheme going, as the remaining pool of carbon emissions tolerable by the planetary system shrinks, we're likely to be told that everyone must, in order to drive down carbon emissions, pay more to emit carbon, which could price the then poor out of the energy market, even for what are sometimes called subsistence emissions. This would sacrifice the present poor to the future poor. Or, we'll be told, we must relax the ceiling on total cumulative carbon emissions and just let them run on beyond the trillion tons and the two degrees centigrade, which will, of course, produce more severe climate change and greater obstacles to the fulfillment of the rights of the future poor, sacrificing them to the present poor and whoever else is emitting carbon. The most significant point is we don't need to face any such dilemma between the poor in the present and the poor in future generations if, and as far as I can see, only if, we take robust action immediately that cuts carbon emissions sharply so the future poor are not threatened by a deteriorating environment and does it while protecting the urgent interests of the current poor who, of course, have the same rights. The longer we just continue to fiddle with our current casualness, the closer we will approach to the dilemma in which a sudden crackdown on carbon emissions designed to forestall the trillionth ton, which would threaten the subsistence emissions of the then current poor, will seem the only alternative to the abandonment of the ceiling, whatever it is, which will, of course, threaten the future poor and everybody else, too, of course. But there's no need to put ourselves, or rather the current and future poor, into this box by continuing to delay facing reality. Instead, urgent action is needed on two converging fronts. First, carbon emissions need to be cut back sharply and aggressively. The atmospheric concentration of carbon will not stop growing until emissions are zero as the language quoted from the IPCC report indicated. Probably the maximum atmospheric co concentration will determine the maximum climate change, although needless to say, that's complicated. Second, alternative energy technologies need to be developed as quickly as humanly possible, aiming at an early day when prices of the alternative technologies are competitive with the prices of fossil fuel and become affordable by the poorest. Fossil fuels are notoriously cheap. This is sort of the main problem. That's the main reason we need either carbon taxes or cap and trade to drive the price up by political choice. But we must aim urgently for a point of crossover in which declines in the prices of alternative technologies and politically driven rises in the prices of fossil fuels mean 
that fossil fuels lose their competitive price advantage. The farther we move on e either front, making fossil fuels more expensive or making alternative energy technologies less expensive, the less far we need to move on the other front. Once the crossover occurs, even the purely selfish, who care nothing for the environment and nothing for the rights of others, will simply find it efficient to use alternative fuels. At that point, humanity might be out of the woods, out of this particular woods, anyway, provided that we have meanwhile not emitted the trillionth ton, or whatever the rapidly advancing science tells us is the outer boundary of environmentally tolerable carbon emissions. If we act vigorously and creatively now, we can invent institutions that will provide a priceless legacy of rights protection for multiple generations.